0: You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right. What's up, church? Good morning. Good to see everyone. Hey, um, if you're here and you were expecting Patrick this morning, we pulled the okey-doke on you and Juke. So I'm Billy, if you don't know me, and I'm a church planning resident here. Uh, We're planning a church in Tomball. Uh, by God's grace later this year, and so we welcome you in. Hopefully, you've enjoyed a week uh, away, maybe taking a little bit of a break. This was spring break for some folks, and hopefully some of you were able to enjoy that. I'm convinced that spring break is a way to get back at those who took away that hour of sleep from us, you know? So we throw in spring break to kind of make up for all that and get parents back on a good sleeping cycle. Hopefully, you were able to rest and uh, be, you know, restored and rejuvenated. Uh, even if you weren't on spring break, if you're going on spring break this week, I hope that uh, you'll find some time to just enjoy God and His creation, enjoy time with your family, doing something different um, than the norm of working and striving and toil um, that we do here uh, on the earth. So, thanks for being here. We welcome you in, as uh, Roosevelt uh, prayed. If you've, for the benefit of our guest. We've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and in Genesis we find the origin of all things in the world, and the beginning of the people of God. And we've been making our way through uh, the first couple of books, and uh, actually in now, today we'll be in chapter 5. But just a recap for those who were out last week, or those who are guests with us today, last week Patrick taught in uh, Genesis chapter 4, he covered the whole chapter, Cain and Abel, what we begin to see Early on is the degeneration of mankind uh, with Cain's murder of his brother Abel, right? And then the second latter half of the chapter, it increases and becomes even more degenerate with Cain's descendants, uh, particularly if you look at Lamech and remember uh, he and his children, uh, a violent and wicked man, Lamech was, who bragged about his violence in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 4. He compares himself to that of Cain saying, hey, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, minus 77. He bragged about his sword, bragged about his violent efforts in the earth. And so after that, his descendants, his children, become the fathers of agribusiness. They develop metallurgy. Um, and other technologies during that day, and then at the end of chapter four, we begin to see after this great picture of darkness, despair, that a bright ray of hope is shined. The hope that Patrick reminded us is the hope throughout all the ages. It's the hope of the gospel that was promised in Genesis 3:15. It's the thread of God's grace that carries all the way to the end in Revelation chapter 21. And it's what we will begin to uncover even more and more as we see kind of these major themes reoccurring throughout the scriptures over and over. We're going to uncover it again today, and I'm excited to to walk with you through that as we take a look at chapter 5. But at the end, we see a new line is introduced in that of Seth. And this new line in verse 25 and 26 called upon the name of the Lord. Right, they, That literally means that they proclaim the excellencies of God. They worshiped God. That's what the people of God have always done. They've always worshiped him. They've always called upon his name. That's what we're doing when we gather as the people of God. We're calling upon the name of the Lord. We're sitting under his word, receiving from him the truth of his word so that it can feed us, that we may feast upon All that throughout our days, that we may know him, that we may walk with him in the light of his glory and in the knowledge of this truth. And so at the end of chapter 4, we have this great promise as Seth, his name literally means appointed. And Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring of Abel for Cain killed him. And then that moves us and lands us today into chapter 5. And so this, this section in chapter 5 introduces us to the second of the ten toldots, or the second of the ten books, the list of genealogies that we'll see as we make our way through the 50 chapters of Genesis. This is the second list of ten generations. And it was, runs today from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8. And then we will see Noah at the end of that. But it extends from Adam through Seth, All the way to Moses. And this line, as you notice as we read, I want you to pay attention. This line stands in a stark contrast to that line of Cain, the Cainite line that we learned about last week. It's very, very different. And at face value, we will begin to see that the grace of God continues to run and meet where sin increases, grace abounds even greater. That's the message of the Bible. That's the Christian gospel. And I want us to take a look at that today. Let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, chapter five, your smartphones, um, I'm reading from the elect standard version today, the ESV. So if you have that, would you please open that up? If not, you can follow along with us, hopefully on the screen. Yeah, my boy Nick's on it this morning. Appreciate that. Let's jump in. We've got a lot of reading. And so if this goes long... Blame it on Patrick, because he assigned these a lot of verses today. And so there's a lot in here that we have to cover. Starting in verse 1, let's read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Verse 15, when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Verse 31. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, where the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention in the thoughts and the hearts were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor In the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit that teaches us who you are about you and about the truth of your word God and illuminates to us Christ and the great message of hope God that you have given us in the form of your word God we thank you God thank you that today we can proclaim your truth because your spirit lives inside of us so God I pray that these words would be your words that it would go out Father that your word we know does not return void and so God I pray that you would do all that you've set out to accomplish today through the proclamation of your word that Christ would be lifted up that men and women and children would see rightly who he is and would be drawn to him, would turn to him, place their hope and faith in Christ today. God, we love you. Thank you for this time, for the opportunity to gather together with others who love you, with your family. Bless us, and for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what we see at face value here as we read through the historical narrative in chapter 5 is a compressed view of the Adam's family tree. We have a compressed view. And so really, telescopes back allows us to see these generations where the line would continue to carry through. And so obviously, we know there were other children. There was a multiplying effect of of people being birthed in the earth. But what we have listed are the, the sons of Adam where the line carried on. And it begins, of course, after Cain, because Cain was cursed. And Seth was given as a new line. And we see that thread. It's that recognizable thread that I talked about that began in 315. And we'll see it running all the way through the text today. And really, if you look for it close enough, you'll see it running throughout the entire Bible. Because it's the message of hope. And the big idea for us today, the big idea that I want us to take away is that despite the onset of sin and its widespread invasion of civilization... This very dark picture in chapter four and then what we see again in six is not left to hopelessness. No. What we see are seeds of grace that begin to sprout forth. That once again we catch a glimpse of this overarching biblical truth that where sin increases, grace abounds even greater. Grace abounds even greater. And let's look in now at verse 1 and 2 as we jump into this text. The, the very first verses of chapter 5, we see this spectacular promise that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 1:27. The imago day, The very image of God. And that is a spectacular promise that, that reference to the imago day, That God created man in his own image that he created the male and female, and we've talked about that and the differences between men and women and the roles and the helpmeet and the way in which women strengthen the weaknesses that men have. But really, if we think about this, what Moses is doing is reminding all those descendants of Seth, you still have this. In spite of what you've seen, in spite of what's broken around you, the image of God still rests on and in you, that's the spectacular promise, as we're going to see. Because they were image bearers, we are image bearers. They had unrivaled privilege. They had unrivaled potential. The first thing that we see, because of that spectacular promise, is that they had the capacity to hear the word of God. They had the capacity, like no other creature except for angels that could hear the words of God and to be able to respond to them and obey them. The second thing that comes out of this that's implied within being image bearers of God is that we as humans and they at that time were made as viceroys for God. They were given dominion to steward over the earth in place of God. That promise still remained as we see Moses recounting that and reminding these people that they were made in the likeness of God. Thirdly, the Imago Dei implies the possibility of spiritual intimacy as children of God. Dogs don't get the same level of intimacy with their creator that we do. I know how much we wanna love on our dogs and bring Fluffy to sleep with us and bathe her and do all those things and buy her neat little Christmas sweaters But it's not the same level of intimacy that we get to, born and made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. That's another level for us. And this great reminder here early on is that that is a spectacular promise. And then we look in moving into verse 2 is that male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Of course, this blessing is defined for us in Genesis 128 as procreation and multiplication. The multiplication of God's image in the earth. That's what God was desiring, that we multiply his image out in the earth, that his glory would cover the earth as waters cover the sea, right? And so that is implied here in verse 2, that the reminder to be fruitful and multiply so these folks were to get after it. They're to get after multiplication. I don't know if there's ever been a command that's been less resisted ever in the history of man. Be fruitful and multiply. Get after it, bro. And so I think we can see that the blessing that these folks were to obey God. And we, next we have verses 3 through twenty in verses 25 through 32, to prove that they did obey, that they did do this, as we have the lineage of Adam and the descendants laid out in 10 generations. So in chapter five, we see that compressed genealogy, and it shows us that they did do what he said, and there was an extraordinary multiplication that took place. The descendants of Adam and Seth fathered thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in the earth. And these offspring who despite the fall could still hear the word of God, could still rule over the earth, and could still live in relationship with God. That's astounding. The truth that the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator, holy God would create us to be able to live in intimate relationship with him, to be viceroys and representatives, ambassadors, to rule over the earth For him and to honor him. So he created us with that ability. Some did. And some did it. Some did not live in relationship with God. And so every time there's this flickering light of hope that sprouts forth as we saw when Seth was born. It's as if it's snuffed out when you read verses 3 through 20. It's as if this wet blanket is just thrown over the fire of hope. For the people. As you read, and we did this call of universal death time after time, and he died, verse 5, and he died, verse 8, and he died, verse 11, and he died, verse 15, and he died, verse 17, right? This resounding, he died, he died, the truth. It is said that life produces hope only to see it dashed by the finality of death. Mike Mason says it like this, that when we become aware of that, that life produces hope only to see it dashed by the finality of death, that when we become aware of that, it's like the unfolding of this murder mystery in which we find ourselves the victim in the end. And so it's like that throwing of that blanket draped over this light-burning hope from the generations of Seth. But look at verse 24 with me. Again, let's ratchet it back to 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enter the man Enoch into the story, into this interruption, this great interruption of, and he died, this seventh generation here. Enoch parallels and contrast to that seventh generation of Lamech and the Canaites. This great violent, wicked man in parallel to Enoch, no accident in how that is arranged to point to the hope that Enoch brings to the lineage of Enoch, mankind will walk with God, continue to walk and know God, and the record of Enoch becomes this great beacon of light that illuminates on top of this dark rhythm of Seth's genealogy and its in this place that Enoch is this eternal antithesis in all of history to Lamech. So Moses records that Enoch walked with God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even greater, friends. Where Lamech was violent, raging, living by the sword, Enoch walked with God. That, my friends, is the hope of the gospel of grace. That's what we've been called into. When you come to Christ, he makes you new. He gives you a new control center where you now are able to walk with God by the power of his spirit. This phrase, walked with God, it's only applied to Enoch and Noah, as we'll find later in verse nine of chapter six. It's this in closest personal communion with God, as if we're walking side by side. You're going on a walk with your wife, your spouse, your loved ones, your children, and you're walking close, holding hands side by side, walking the Lord. It's an ongoing intimacy that is implied here. If you've walked with the Lord for any time of length of time, um, and I, by God's grace, was captivated by the Lord at age nine and I've been walking with him for 30 years and the intimacy that grows in a walk of time like that with the Lord. It's like your marriage, right? Those of you who've been married, I've been coming up on 19 years and those who've been married longer than that, the intimacy, the amazing grace of marriage and walking and intimacy with another human being pales in comparison to the one we have with the eternal God. Pales in comparison, but it's a great taste and a foretaste and of what God desires for us and the gift of marriage and how it points to this greater relationship that we can have with the Father. And so it becomes this common description, the life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord. It's as if to say that walking with the Lord was a step above just mere living. Walking with the Lord is that step above just a mere living Isn't that a great paradigm for us in general when we think about it for Christians? That walking with the Lord, we say that a lot. When we're talking about ourselves, I began walking with the Lord. Or that person over there has started to walk with the Lord. I was thinking about this for my own life. Wouldn't it be great that if Jesus were to tarry and I'm going to pass from this life into eternity... That when they come to the epitaph on my headstone that it would read my name and then it would say walked with God and he was no more. Wouldn't that be fantastic if that's what was on the epitaph of your headstone? If that was on the epitaph of my headstone? That's all we need written. That would say everything about us as it did Enoch. Walked with God. And then Billy was no more. He was no more. That would say all that was needed to say. People would know what our life was about by that simple statement. That would be a win for you. That would be a win for me. That is the aim of the Christian life, to grow in the likeness of Jesus progressively as we walk with God, that as we progress with him, that we begin to be true salt and light, sprinkling flavor of grace in the earth, that we're the aroma of the gospel to those who are around us, that they see Jesus in us, and that it happened the same way for Enoch as he walked with the Lord. We see that Enoch walked with the Lord By faith. This is true for anyone that walks with the Lord. This is the truth universally that the only way to walk with God is to walk with him by faith. We enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's how this walk begins. Look with me now, Hebrews 11. We should have it up on the screen. Um, Verses five and six. Familiar passage for those of you Uh, in the church, but this is that great hall of faith, so to speak, where those who received grace and walked by faith, verse five, the writer to the Hebrews says that by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God, must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. He rewards those who seek Him, who seek Him. Tell us that Enoch's walk with God was by faith. He walked with God by believing what God promised. Faith is simply hearing the word of God, taking God at His word, and walking in it, obeying it, taking Him at His word, and simply believing and living your life in response to the truth of God's word. He believed God. Faith has an object for us, right? It's not just this blind hope. Our faith is rooted in universal truth, in a universal person of Christ, the one who is and was and is to come. And so we find that without faith, it's impossible to walk with God. But Enoch walked with God We who are here today walk with God by faith. That faith pleases God. That faith honors God. Is it the desire of your heart to honor God, to please God? Christian, is that the desire of your heart, to please God? I hope that it is. Because it's not something we muster up on our own, right? as we walk with him by faith, we are changed. We are made into the image and the likeness of Christ that he gives us new desires at the root of our heart. He transforms us, right? Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about being a new creation. That's what that's all about. The old sin, flesh desires are no longer ruling us. Yeah, we deal with them. We have to constantly And we'll be constantly putting to death. But they no longer rule over us. We're not being led around by our flesh. We have the ability now to resist the temptation to sin and to honor and obey God. The obedience that pleases God. That's what faith delivers. Without faith, we can't please God. Zero amount of works, zero amount of of coming to the church, coming to the altar, walking and doing things, working out in your community, taking goods to the local food bank. None of that is what God wants from us to help bring us into relationship. It's by faith. It's out of our being that our doing then flows. And so Enoch not only walked with God personally, but guess what Enoch did? He preached. Enoch preached the coming judgment For those who reject God and continue in their own way. Enoch was not unlike any other Christian, any other follower of God that has ever lived. He proclaimed the coming judgment. If we turn now to Jude verses 14 and 15, we'll see that in verse 14, Jude reminds us of this. He says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain. Advantage. So Enoch walks with God. Enoch proclaims the good news and the hope of God and that repentance is necessary to walk in right relationship with God. So walking with God produces a compassion for those around us who don't know him. Walking with God produces something inside of us that looks at our neighbor, looks at our coworker, looks at our family members, And compassion wells up because we know that they are waiting the coming judgment of God. That if you are apart from Christ, you're under the wrath of God. It's coming for you. Enoch proclaimed it. We're going to see again that Noah proclaims it. That's the Christian walk. Walking with God, growing in compassion and love and grace and proclaiming the hope of Jesus So that people will know there's a hope that awaits for them. That they can be moved from under the wrath of God and have a seat at his table with a name inscribed son or daughter. Come and enter the rest that I've prepared for you. That love results in that desire to share. And so Jesus, what we see now is that Jesus walked with Enoch 300 plus years a progressively close walk with God. I hope you can say you've experienced it. I hope you can say you are experiencing it progressively. Sometimes it's good for us to take a snapshot of our life and look back the way we do at children photos and look at ourselves. We need to do that with our spiritual selves at times to look back at ourselves five years ago, three years ago, 20 years ago. What were the things that were in our hearts during that time that we no longer see, that are no longer there, right? The things that characterized our lives that we can no longer see because we've walked with God. He's taken those away. Take a snapshot. Do that sometimes so that you can, not so that you can see how good you are, but so you can see how great God has been to you. That you can see this grace upon grace. It's only by grace. Paul said it's yet for the grace of God go I. And that's the hope that we have. And so these waves of God's unmerited favor of love, kindness, mercy, crashing all over us. Like you're standing with your back to the ocean. We, last summer, Patrick, we had the blessing of being in California. And we were trying to stand in the ocean with these waves coming toward our back. And it was impossible to stand. I mean, we were getting smashed and shaken all over the place, and that's just a great image of the grace of God smashing over the top of us, making us impossible for us not to receive the truth of what God has done. Verse 24 said, God took him. Then as a young man, Here, Enoch, at the tender age of 365 years, the Lord takes him. In comparison to Methuselah, this dude was young. He was a young young buck. We do not know how this happened. I wish we had a description of it because I think it would be pretty sweet like we did with Elijah. Maybe it was one of those Star Trek kind of moments, you know, where you're beamed, beamed up. I don't know, but it just says the Lord took him. It wasn't important how. But we know that his walk of faith extended into eternity. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. That's the hope of faith for you and for me. That's the reality that the gospel of grace produces, and that the eternal security for those who are in Christ is that by faith we walk with God now, yeah? But our walk will keep us walking all the way into eternity with God forever and ever, and ever. And so our physical bodies will break down. I'm 39, I get hurt in my sleep now, so I can say that is true. And I keep trying to blame it on the mattress, but I don't know. It's up for debate. So our body will turn to dust, no matter how much peanut butter and banana and honey sandwiches I eat, no matter how many P90X routines I do or how many miles I run, No matter what we do to try to beautify our temple, our bodies are going to crash. They're going to break down. They're going to return to dust. That's a sobering thought. One day we will be no more. And I hope that we can say, because we walked with God, that we walked through the suffering of this present life from suffering We walk through death and into eternity with God. We don't stop in death for those who are covered by the grace of God. We walk straight into eternity as Enoch did. We will join with the millions and millions before us and keep on walking with God. It's by faith, brother, sister, friend who's here today, if you don't know God, it is by faith that you enter into The Promised Land. It is by faith that we will join in that great chorus around the throne of amazing grace as we sing of how great the gospel and the good news of our King is. When we join with the throngs and the angels and all of creation crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. That's made possible just like Enoch, to you, to me, by faith. It's all by God's amazing grace, the wonders of the cross and of Christ that when Christ returns, the faithful will not taste corruption and death, no. Paul said when he wrote to that church in Corinth that they will in a moment be changed. He said in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Wow, what a hope. Look now to one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible, uh, chapter six. Thank you, Patrick, for that. I appreciate you having me work through chapter six. There's a discipline that I think all of us should subscribe <laughs> to, to to work through chapter six exegetically, uh, as m- this is probably the most difficult text in all of scripture to interpret correctly. And I'm going to tell you where I landed through prayer and through study, through weeks of study, and uh, we'll leave it be. But chapter six, after we see the grace of Enoch, and then Noah comes at the end of the chapter, where they even looked in verse uh, 29, they, they called his name Noah, saying that out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one will bring us relief. So they were still looking for that relief that promised one from Genesis 3, 15, that would bring them relief from the curse of sin and death. And so verse one and verse two, when we see in chapter six it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives and they, as they chose, any they chose. Sorry about that. So man begins to multiply, we have that account. Um, But as men begins to multiply, wickedness begins to multiply even greater, right? As fallenness had entered in and it taints every single part of creation. And the face of the land, the daughters were born to the men. And so the sons of God in verse 2 saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So we have to define who are the, the daughters of men, of course, those who were listed in genealogy and those who weren't women being born during that time. And then the sons of God is really where we have to get at to, to understand the exegetical challenges. Um, this text, as I read it over and over and as I read commentary and as I prayed through it, as I see it as a descriptive text that describes the days and the times and the events that were going on uh, during this time. And in an attempt to describe the level of wickedness and its scope, we're given this picture of what was happening. We're kind of given this insight into this time and day. And it was such depravity that it leads to, as we see um, coming in verses 5 and 7, judgment. But verse 1 says that multiplying is good and God's plan to fill the earth. However, the wickedness increased. In verse 2 the problems are compounded here by the marriages of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So the sons of God are fallen angels. These are the angels who fell and become demonic in possessing men. They are, it's such wicked times that the demonic possessions of men allow them to marry the daughters of men. And they don't even see it. They don't even see the wickedness that's happened. We have... Job chapter 1 that talks about, verse 6 in Job chapter 1, talks about who these sons of God were. He says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So these sons of God, these fallen angels, the ones who fell with Lucifer during that time, are here on the earth during this time, and they are Possessing men and marrying with daughters of men. These same sons of God are referred to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. You want to take these down, you can do a great study later this week on it yourself. Um, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then also, 1 Peter, flip over a couple pages, uh, 3 19, looking at who these sons of God are, it says that Christ, it's talking about Christ, in verse 18, Peter says, says, He suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went and proclaimed to these fallen angels that we read about would be imprisoned because of their disobedience to God, their rebellion to God. And then finally, Jude chapter 1, verse 6. to help support who these are, to explain the sons of God. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these angels stepped out with Satan, fallen. They now are demons possessing men. This is how wicked the earth was during this time. The description of this time as utterly wicked and fallen and deplorable where demonic possessed men are marrying daughters of men. They looked here and we see this pattern that we saw back with Adam and Eve that begins, if you look with me, in, uh, in verse 2. It says, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Saul with their eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, attractive, took. Adam and Eve saw the fruit. It was delightful. They took of it. And we see the same pattern go- that is re- reverberating through here. In this, in both instances, something good in creation that is used in disobedience and sinful rebellion against God. Both of them have tragic consequences. We're about to find out what the tragic consequences are here in this chapter 6. But look at verse 3 with me now. Then the Lord responds. The Lord said that my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years And there's a debate about the 120 years and whether it is actually 120 years as a life span individually. Or if it was speaking to the 120 years from then when the flood would come. But what is announced is that because of the immoral nature of people in this day, that these days will be shortened by God. There's a repercussion coming for the disobedience. And then verse 4 with us. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So Nephilim, lots and lots of study can be done on the Nephilim. It's kind of a funny word to say, Nephilim. It kind of feels icky to say Nephilim, but literally, it means fallen ones. That's what the word means in Hebrew. The meaning is kind of unclear and uncertain um, because it occurs in numbers 1333. Here it says that they were on the earth during this time and afterward. so that means after the flood they were on the earth. that causes some issues if we're thinking through how did that happen? If these were the offspring of the angels with the daughters of men, uh, I just think it's a description of. Who, what was going on and who were around during this time. It was a historical time that he's saying, hey, remember the Nephilim? They were here too. You remember them in Numbers 13 when the spies went and came and Joshua saw them and they were afraid? Those same guys were on the earth during this wicked time as well. And they were also known as a group of men who were of renown, it says. And so what happens is when they translated the Greek, they go back and they translate this word into gigantes, giants. And so they translate it looking back. And it may not necessarily give the proper meaning for what we, when we read that from a Western mind is that it was giants. But really what it was, the Nephilim, one thing is certain about them is that these were fallen ones. They were the heroes. They were the mighty men of old. And they were characterized as men of violence. The same word is used to describe Nimrod. Later in Genesis 10:8, that he was a mighty man. It's the same word used to describe the Nephilim. They were mighty men of old. I have this picture in my mind. Y'all have seen that movie 300? Gerard Butler, King Leonidas. I have this picture that the Nephilim were these great, strong, violent, mighty men that just ruled the earth during this time, and they did violent acts of wickedness. And we have a picture here in the first four verses of this thoroughly demonized culture. We have demons possessing men, marrying daughters. We have violent, wicked men ruling, despising the creation of God. And then we move to verse five now. God's response. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And catch this, that every Intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Those are some adjectives there that we need to pay attention to. We need to understand when we look around at our culture, we think, we have violent men in the UFC culture or in the football culture or in the culture of this world that we see violent men and people that lust for violence in our culture, lust for blood. We're not even close to this. It's not even close. This is every, only, continually. Wow. We have laws in place to help keep that within the bounds, right? We have laws that help push back some of that. We have the Holy Spirit restraining it as well in the earth. But this is total human degeneration. This is depravity at the core, the universal intensity and pervasiveness of this human wickedness described concisely here. Every, only, and continually. All the time. The depravity was not a temporary state. Some, when we sin, we move on to a place where we move from that. And we hopefully, we have by the Spirit of God, we repent and turn back into a place where we desire to please God. There was none of that. It was only every, continually, on evil and wicked. There were no relentings. There's no repentance. No hesitations, even. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to us for us to imagine. Lust was their medium and violence was their method. This was the state of human civilization in Genesis chapter 6. And God saw the wickedness. And then we get verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord was sorry. What does that mean? The Lord was sorry. The Hebrew verb is nakam and it is sometimes translated to repent. You see in other translations, it is sorrow or regretted to feel grieved. That's exactly God's heart was filled with great pain. God's heart was filled with great pain. The people he had created to commune with him, to be his viceroys, to be his ambassadors, and to fill the earth with his glory had now turned it all in on themselves, raining down violence upon the earth, living in a depraved state, rebelling totally against God. And it's the most intense form of human emotion that we can fathom is that great mixture of bitter rage and anguish that I can imagine that the loss of something close, the loss of someone close to you tragically, when we see things on the news or when we give our our children some kind of instruction and then as the children grow up, they walk away from that instruction. That's the only way I know that that fails but it's the only way I know how to to have a bitter anguish in my heart towards something that I love so much and rejects me in such a powerful way. God was sorry. He was intensely grieved. And then verse 7, he reveals his plan So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So, wiping out man and all creatures from existence, there are no half measures when it comes to dealing with sin. That's the takeaway. Sin is not to be managed. When we think we're managing our sin, that's when we're outed. Because the management of sin is impossible. We're not managers of sin. We have to put to death what is ungodly in us, Paul talks about. That's the reason. Be killing sin or it's killing us, right? Amen. Right? That is the serious nature of sin is that it's always lurking, right? When we're, Every time we're walking and we're drifting away, sin is lurking right around the corner, waiting to devour us, waiting to take us away from what God has for us because sin leads to death, my friends. Sin leads to death now and eternally. And there's no half measures. And so in 315, God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. But look at this race. It looks impossible. There's no... One here that's capable of delivering such a seed. When we look at this, there's no one here capable of delivering such a seed. But what do we know is true? Where sin abounds, grace increases even greater, my friends. Verse 8 The sovereign grace of God on display to us. For Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. A simple sentence. The sovereign grace of God that intercepts into the reality of time and space and creation to say, I haven't forgotten about my promise in 315, you guys. I've still got that thread, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, that where sin abounds, Grace abounds even greater. And Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It was all of grace that Noah found favor. It was all of God's great sovereign kindness and favor that Noah responds to God's grace just like Enoch did. Just like you and I have the potential and the possibility to respond to the grace of God today. Well, how did Noah respond? These are the generations of Noah. We don't get that sentence if Noah doesn't respond in faith. The generations of Noah are not going to be included as a righteous generation if Noah didn't respond in faith. That's why Noah's included. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem. Ham and Japheth. And that's personal to me. I have three sons. I want my sons to know that I walked with God. I want them to walk with God. Trust God. They will be righteous. The deepest intimacy of obedience with God. Noah knew him. Left to himself, he would have perished like the rest of us left to ourselves. But Noah becomes a herald of righteousness. Remember Noah heralding righteousness, the heralding God in 2 Peter 2.5. We already read it. This side of the flood, you and I don't have to worry about the fear of the universal deluge, do we? We have the promise that God will not do that again. But what we must fear, even more deadly, is one of being forever drowned under the crashing, rushing waves of our own sin. That's the fear of being apart from God, being separated by sin, separated in death. Noah walked with God. He found favor with God. There's only one other man in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that talks about he found favor with God in the same way. Moses. Moses was put in an ark, <laughs> wasn't he? Noah's was about to show us what the ark looks like. The themes of God's grace run through and through the Bible, friends. It's all over the pages of scripture and history. And we get to participate in that together. And today, our only hope is in God's greatest revelation of his grace. In the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. God's love and character are best seen at the cross. When we look at the cross and we see what Christ has done to make a way for us to have a relationship with him, to walk with him through this life and into eternity, my friends. What we see from the descendants of Adam and in Enoch through the violent times of the Nephilim and all the way up to Noah today, what we see is that the continuation of God's grace, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that closes out that section of the descendants. But what we find is that the greater that sin increases, the grace of God abounds greater. God's grace covers all our sin by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice on the cross that atones for our rebellion, for our wickedness. And then Christ becomes the ark in which we all run to to find forever safety, hope, joy, and communion with God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.